Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 67 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am coming to you from NBC's offices at 30 Rock in New York's Rockefeller Center, and specifically the offices of Late Night with Seth Meyers. That's because my guest is Seth Meyers. The 42-year-old is, of course, the brains behind some of the funniest comedy of the 21st century. First, at Saturday Night Live, where he worked from 2001 to 2014, longer than any cast member other than Daryl Hammond, and where he rose to become not only a cast member but also head writer, and also since 2014 as the host of Late Night with Seth Meyers, which follows The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon every weeknight at 12.35 a.m., 11.35 Central. Over the course of our conversation, Myers talks about the roots of his interest in comedy and how he was first discovered for SNL, what it was like doing his first SNL episode the week after 9-11, what is at the root of the genius of Lorne Michaels, the creator of SNL and the executive producer of Late Night, how his time on SNL and particularly as an anchor of Weekend Update helped to prepare him for Late Night, and what his experience has been like since he succeeded Fallon in the Late Night seat. He's very candid about the things that, as a late-night host, he doesn't do as well as some of his competitors. He's the first to admit he's not a singer, dancer, or mimic. But we also talk about the things that he does, in my view, better than just about any of those others. Like speaking and joking intelligently about just about any subject, and conversing engagingly with guests from just about any walk of life. He also sheds some light about his own future plans, and gives an indication of how long we might expect him to remain at late night before moving on to other things. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for doing this, Seth. Appreciate My pleasure. It. Thank you for coming in. Absolutely. Uh, to begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Evanston, Illinois, but I was raised in New Hampshire. Uh, my father's a businessman, and my mother was a middle school French teacher. Was comedy a big part of your life as a kid? It was. My parents were very big comedy fans, my dad in particular, and at a very non-age-appropriate time, they introduced me to things like Richard Pryor and Nichols right. and May and Steve Martin, uh, Woody Allen, and we watched SNL when we were really young. When did you yourself first realize that you were A, funny, and B, a talented writer? Well, my dad's really funny. And probably the funniest Myers man. And he was one of those people that just made everyone laugh at every party you were at as a kid. And I think the first time I realized I was funny is when I made my dad laugh. Okay. Because he's also an impossibly hard audience. <laughs> uh, his sense of humor uh, is, n is so good that he is not generous with his praise uh, where it is not deserved. And then, you know, I was really lucky uh, to come through a public school system where teachers were really uh, supportive and I had a lot of writing teachers early on who told me I had a, a skill there and I, I, I owe great debt of gratitude to those teachers. So when you go off to Northwestern, yeah, what did you imagine you would be doing with your life afterwards? I, I thought I was worked in a video store in uh, Bedford, New Hampshire, which is as close as you get to the film industry. <laughs> so I really thought, you know, as a radio, television, film major, and my plan was to go and be a film director. That's what I thought I wanted to be. And I pretty quickly into my film classes at Northwestern realized that I would never have the patience for it. And uh, I have such respect for both film uh, directors, film writers, at the amount of uh, 
skill and attention to detail it requires. And But I was lucky because Northwestern then did have this writing program that I got into my junior year. So I started doing creative writing for the media there. And, and at that point, I started shifting my focus towards trying to be a writer of some kind. But the whole time I was at Northwestern, I desperately wanted to be a part of the improv troupe, which was this incredibly competitive eight-person troupe that had auditions every year and that I did not become a member of until my senior year. But once I got in there and I was taking classes in Chicago, improv classes at the time, I, I sort of thought, oh, I'm going to try to do this on stage comedy thing for as long as I can. And at the time, I would say my, my compass was sort of pointed towards Second City. Like, that's what, gotcha. when I graduated college, that's what I wanted more than anything. And did you, because that was nearby, right? I mean, yeah. Was, yeah. So we all, you know, everybody who sort of stayed in Chicago, you know, Evanston's, uh, you know, about 40 minutes away, and we all would sort of uh, pack up and get cheap apartments in Chicago, uh, those of us who wanted to be improvisers and just, you know, performing and hoping to have auditions, uh, hoping to have a good audition for Second City. So as you got more and more into this and it became a more serious thing for you, I mean, I, I've read about uh, Improv Olympic. I've read about you went off to Amsterdam for a yeah. couple of years. What were... What did your folks think about this? Well, so the Amsterdam thing was Pete Gross, uh, who was a uh, Colbert Report writer, a writer here. He's on Veep. He was uh, my closest friend, and we were improvising in Chicago, and he saw this audition notice for this place called Boom Chicago, which was some Chicago guys had started an improv theater in Amsterdam. Why Amsterdam? They were in Amsterdam smoking weed, (laughs) and it occurred to them that it would be a good idea. (laughs) So sort of the most cliche reason. I should say it's still going strong. So great, this yeah. is uh, to all the listeners out there. Every now and then, weed will right. give you a, an enduring, successful idea. So we uh, and they were Northwestern guys as well. And so when we went and auditioned, Pete and I, uh, it was sort of just tailor made for the skill set because they're sort of Northwestern improvisers. Had you know, we're auditioning some other Northwestern improvisers. And uh, my parents, uh, God love them, who've been incredibly supportive of the path. My brother and I decided to. Uh, you know, try, they really thought it was exciting that I would move to Amsterdam and they came over all the time and they visited and they, I think for them, it was this really exciting chapter in their life where all of a sudden this foreign city became a place they could go visit their kids. So now after, I guess like two years, you, yeah. where you had been very happy there from everybody. Super happy. Yeah. Was it, what was it that made you decide you got to go back to Chicago? There, I think for an American comedian in Holland, there's just a lower ceiling. <laughs> and in general, there's lower ceilings in Holland everywhere, right. and narrow staircases. But <laughs> we, I was, but I was lucky because I think I could have been complacent enough and happy enough to stay. I, uh, there was a girl in the cast at the time named Jill Benjamin, and she and I had done a lot of stuff on stage together in Amsterdam, and she basically was the one who lit a fire and said, I think we need to go back to Chicago, but I don't want to go back and just wait for the next Second City audition. Let's go back and do a two-person show. So uh, I really owe so much to her and her drive because sometimes you just need people like that in your life who uh, kind of drag you along with them. And we, uh, we so we put together this two-person show that became sort of a, a small uh, hit in this Chicago. Pickups and hiccups. Pickups and hiccups. Yes. Um, and again, in the late '90s, pickups and hiccups is nowhere near as hacky a name as it's now. <laughs> that was a it was a cutting edge comedy name. Everybody was rhyming back right, then. Sure. Everybody was rhyming. <laughs> Chuckles and Buckles, that was a big one. Uh, No, so Pickups and Hiccups. And we would do it and really, you know, we started at this theater called The Live Bait, which was probably about 70 seats. And we would do, you know, sort of small uh, six to 12-week runs. 
And uh, but it was great. We did it for a couple of years, and then we did it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival a couple of times. And because of that, we got to do it in London. We got to do it in Singapore. Wow! And it was a great time for us, and it also kind of allowed us to distinguish ourselves from other people in Chicago, which was helpful. And and the biggest uh, benefit it ever provided uh, for me was we were just doing it one night at a Chicago Improv Festival. And uh, Ayala Cohen, who at the time worked in the talent department at SNL, just was randomly in the audience, and that sort of started the gears moving towards me getting on SNL. So how did that actually go down? She she approached you after the show was over or something? No, she went through Kelly Leonard, who runs Second City and who I knew uh, just through being in that world. And he actually reached out to me and said, you know, this woman from uh, SNL reached out, and she wants me to – I just want – are you okay if I pass on your information? Which it turned out I was. <laughs> but it was amazing because I, I – you know, I remember just putting together an audition tape, and it's so much easier now for people putting together right. audition right. tape. I mean, we, I had to find somebody with a camera. And then I had to get that camera converted to VHS, right. and I'm it's so. And again, this isn't a million years ago. Right, it's yeah. you know, ninth. It was two thousand. I guess two thousand. Yeah. So, you know, I sent off that audition in a Manila envelope, and I kind of at the time thought the end of the anecdote was that at one point in my career, SNL had given me their address, right, right. and I would have been perfectly <laughs> content with that. And sort of about six months later, they asked for another tape, and then about six months after that, they. Uh, I got called in to, to have an audition here. So, uh, yeah, it was, a, you know, it was a long process from when they first saw me to when I first And came. the audition here was for Lauren? It was for Lauren. It was in, the, it was in 8H. It was, uh, Lauren was there, Tina was there, um, you know, a bunch of other people, probably about eight to ten people in the studio. I had not known Rachel Dratch, but we had friends in common, and I reached out and talked to her. She was incredibly gracious and, and gave me advice about the audition. And I did uh, all my hit impressions, uh, <laughs> Russell Crowe and Hugh Grant, David Arquette, again, right. we're talking 2001, those were all really hip. Right. Uh, and uh, it was good. You know, I will say, you know, uh, one of the nice things about SNL auditions as opposed to auditioning for something else is you get to bring your own material. And so I don't, you know, again, I'm, I was always going to be the lower tier impressionist at SNL, but I feel like I brought in a well-written audition and I can tell you from years later where I was on the other side of the desk you kind of notice oh this person could be able to self-start right um which was my entire SNL career was then uh, based on having to self-start with writing did you get any feedback at that audition or did it did you have to wait till a call came at some other point yeah I walked out the door um I walked out of this building and I sat down and started to sob really? <laughs> I was just like so emotionally yeah. overwhelmed by yeah. what I'd just gone through and also I think I it was one of the first auditions of my life, and I should note, I didn't have any after where I felt this way. Uh, I felt it had gone well. And uh, I think I was a little overwhelmed by the fact that it had gone well. And I don't think I thought I would get hired, but I just, I, I had this relief of, I'm never, I'm not going to live my life thinking I blew this. Sure. And I put a lot of work into it, and so it was just relief. And then I flew back to L.A., why were you in L.A.? Uh, I'd lived in L.A. for about nine months between Chicago and SNL. We basically made the move. I went out there with Jill. I went out there with my brother. I did one episode of Spin City with Charlie Sheen. Uh, <laughs> that was my. Uh, that was the only time I was on television right. before SNL. Wow. And I remember when Charlie Sheen had his meltdown, it took me like a full six weeks before I remembered I'd worked with him. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. I have to do that, dude. Yeah. So I, uh, yeah, so I flew all the way back to L.A., and then I got a call like a day later that Lauren wanted to meet me. 
And so I flew all the way oh. back to New York. Oh. By the way, at the time, you know, when you're sort of a, a destitute actor, a business class flight is so much nicer than anything. Well, at least, we, okay, so at least they're paying yeah, for yeah, it. They're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not yeah. like, oh, no, well, how am I going to scrap <laughs> right, the money together right. to get back out the ticket <laughs> no, train? because well, I thought maybe you told them you were, like, in New York. Oh, no, then... <laughs> no, no, no. It was all, like, they, every flight I took, they had, uh, they had done through their travel agent. Right. So I flew all the way back, and I met with Lauren, and it was, I think, pretty consistent with the sort of crypto Lorne meetings where <laughs> I think he very clearly felt he had offered me the job and I had accepted, whereas I left thinking there were still like nine more stages and <laughs> it had very much been left in the air. I will never forget he said at one point during the meeting, well, you know, I think we'll try to, to see how you look in wigs. <laughs> and so I thought there was this wig test <laughs> that I had to pass. Of course, that never came up again. Right. But... Again, I got back on the plane. I flew all the way back to L.A. And uh, was that was the longest, probably 48 hours of my life. Because now I knew it was, you know, they weren't choosing between 20. They were probably choosing between four. And I got a, I actually was, I had, at the time I was auditioning for this weird improv sketch show on Fox. And the producers from that show called and said, congratulations, we heard you got SNL. and. Whoa. I was sort of telling them, uh, you know, because I'm I don't believe anything, and I mean I was like six weeks into SNL before I accepted I worked there, but <laughs> I told them, you know, no, that's not the case. But then I got called waiting and, and right. found out then. Awesome. So uh, your first SNL show, if I, if my information is correct and my memory is correct, is that was the one, the first one after nine eleven. It was the nine eleven show, yeah. So, what was that like to prepare for? Well. I mean, even crazier than preparing for that show, obviously, was I just moved to New York. Right. I moved on August 20th. Wow. And, you know, I'm living in this tiny garden apartment in the West Village, and I just remember the morning of 9-11 hearing sirens yeah. being so new to New York that I just thought that was, how, you know, that fit in my idea of like, oh, well, that's the New York City right. for you. <laughs> and, uh, and then just trying to wrap... Again, we, I was... That was a time of the show where I didn't actually know what the inner circle was talking about. You know, later at SNL, I feel like I had a much better sense of what was going on. But I just sort of like sitting and waiting, trying to figure out, are we going to do the show? Right. Is this season going to happen? Right. And uh, I think I think it maybe was delayed a week. I can't mm -hmm. remember. But I do know that it was just as weird as any other first show. Mm -hmm. You know, I think other people who have their first SNL say, Your must, yours must have been crazy. And I always tell them, yours is just as crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that other than, you know, the extra, you know, there were more cops and firemen. Uh, I guess the one good thing about it is it, it probably, it was perspective that I lost by the next week, mm -hmm. for what it's worth. But... The SNL didn't feel like the biggest thing in the world right. that night. And then again, uh, by the next week, it did. You're just back to yeah. the grind, yeah. Um, uh, you've said that you constantly felt during those first few years like you were failing. That, yeah. Why Why was that? Well, you know, I wasn't... I found it very hard to write for me, and then it made sense that other writers who knew me even less would have trouble writing for me. You know, I didn't come with a bunch of moves uh again my career has uh followed a path where now i sit behind a desk and right. <laughs> don't move at all right. so the world is has caught up with the fact that i don't have a lot of range <laughs> but i just was uh struggling to i think find a voice in the cast uh and i was the one thing i was really lucky with was i could write sketches early on they weren't the best sketches but I feel as though there was enough promise in the kind of things I was writing that I probably 
got a little more rope from Lauren than I would have if if I had just showed up and said, "I look, I don't, I don't write sketches, but here's what I do as a performer." I don't think I would have lasted very long. And you've you've also said that Lauren's approval was always not surprisingly very important to you. Was it first sort of really felt when he discovered that you were? A talented writer. I mean, because because you pretty quickly advanced up the food chain of the writing side, right? Yeah, I remember very uh, because Polar and I started at the same time, and so it was me and Polar, Dratch, Tina, Horatio. So there was this sort of Chicago influx, and the Chicago Sun Times did a piece maybe four weeks into that season, and got Lauren gave quotes about everybody, and the one thing I remember was very early on. He said that. Uh, you know, you, I can tell Seth's a really good writer. And that was a nice thing for me to see early on. Mm-hmm. And I think also made me sort of redouble my efforts to the idea of trying to be add value with the writing staff. And then I think over the course of time, more just out of uh, both loving to write sketch comedy and also realizing it was my key to survival, I wrote a lot of group scenes where it wasn't about, it wasn't a Seth sketch. I wrote political things that I wasn't in. I wrote monologues that uh, obviously I wasn't, I didn't play much of a role with. Um, and so then when Tina, when it became clear that Tina was leaving, I was really, uh, you know, flattered that Lauren wanted me to sort of step up into the writing staff. Cause at the time I wasn't even a credited writer on the show, like all the cast members, even though all the cast members write. And, and you went out at that time when she left, isn't it true that you went out for weekend update and didn't initially get it? Well, the f- I went out when Jimmy left. When Jimmy left, yeah. Okay. So when Jimmy left, I auditioned, and that was when Amy got it. Okay. Which is one of those cases where you don't feel as I don't. I didn't feel like they blew it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, right. I, uh, <laughs> and I think if I did, I was very aware that I wasn't going to get a lot of uh, right. people on my side. <laughs> Can you believe they're going with Polar and Faye? <laughs> so I, you know, I, and of course that in the end, I do think ended up working out in my favor a couple years later because when. Uh, Tina left. I was really lucky that I, uh, through friendship and, and through being co-workers who had collaborated a bunch, I think it made sense. I just had a better chance to fit in and, and be a, a Polar's right-hand man for a while. Everyone sort of acknowledges that Lauren is a genius, and he's got yeah. his hands in so many different things beyond SNL, including Late Night yeah. and so many other. What is it, though, that if you could pinpoint what is it that makes him so good? I mean, the the fact that he has managed to remain, uh, to to retain a, a hand on the pulse of what people find funny on on mass for so long is obviously remarkable. But but can you, as somebody who's worked really closely with him for a long time, pinpoint what it actually is that he does so well? Well, I mean, I think the one lesson uh, that's the most important I took from him when I put this show together is I think Lauren's taste is. Where he exercises that taste the most is who you hire. And so when I put together a staff, it was hiring people that I thought would be able to do this job without being micromanaged, which we don't do here. And we're very much in the SNL uh, style where we do table reads. We let people write whatever they want. Uh, we throw a lot away, but we let them all be heard. And we so we don't like pitch first and say, great, you go write that, you go write that. We kind of let it come in and and sift through it. And I think what Lauren has done and what we certainly try to do here is, um, you know, trust the people you hire. And if you hire people who have comedy voices that make you laugh, they'll come up with stuff that will make other people laugh. Right. Everybody that has ever been interviewed about you, your castmates, everybody says you gave away some of your best material to other people. I mean, from Tina Fey with the Sarah Palin stuff, not that that was necessarily one that you <laughs> yeah, could have stepped right, into, right. but uh, is there a certain 
pleasure in seeing other people deliver your material. Oh, absolutely. And also, again, I'm not, uh, I, you know, I really do believe that they're better at it than I am. You know, I worked at SNL, which is what I believe people will look back at, and I, I don't count myself among them. I think that cast will be like one of the three or four golden eras of people, and they just elevated everything you did. And when I think back to my happiest moments at SNL, you know, look, there were times a weekend update where uh, I felt really good about the job I was doing, but I was also in the moment of performing and I had that stress. Standing under the bleachers at air when you know something you wrote is about to be like just perfectly executed by some of the best people that have ever done that job was that was like pure bliss because it didn't have the burden of needing to be the one to actually go out and execute it. So that, yeah, those are some of my happiest moments. And again, like they just, Lauren always said, you know, when they love the cast, they love the writing. And I do feel like I was there at a time where people love the cast. And sure. so it made everybody um, appreciate the writing. We were really lucky as a writing staff then. So by all indications now and, and everything else I've ever read, it was your quote unquote dream job. Yeah, it was. So why were you open to the idea even? And why was it even suggested to you by Lauren, who was the person who could least afford to lose you, yeah. that you should go think about late night? I, you know, I do really appreciate that Lauren did that because he, uh, you know, at that point, I do think uh, he valued what I brought to the show. And I hadn't, I hadn't been working on an exit plan. I had uh, really, I really loved working there. I will say, you know, I think if I'd stayed by now, I would feel as though, oh, this is the, I'm now here with the fourth generation of people. You know, I've gone from being the freshman to being now the grad student right. who <laughs> is never going to have the credits. So, and when this came up, my first fear was that I just wouldn't like it as much and that it would be boring compared to it and that the, the grind of every day would be so much worse. And all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, 40 plus weeks versus 20 plus weeks and... Uh, you know, four shows a week versus one show a week. And it just, it just seemed so oppressively hard. With that said, you know, I, uh, I just thought of the things that I could do next once it struck me that I'd have to do something next. This would have some of the similarities. I like the idea of staying in New York. I like the idea of staying in this building. Yeah, like I down the, the hall, literally, right? Literally down the yeah. hall. <laughs> and... Uh, so I, uh, yeah, I sort of jumped in with two feet. But I was not, you know, I wasn't emotionally ready for it. I stayed for the first half of the next season at SNL, which, looking back, was seemed crazy that I wouldn't have taken more time to get ready for this show. With that said, I think if we'd had more time, we just would have come up with more things that weren't going to work. But it was an emotional thing. I mean, I've read in, I think it was a Hollywood Reporter article where it says that Shoemaker, who is the yeah. person that came over with you, and may, and I'll, I'll leave you to say more about him, but Shoemaker had offered to help him carry boxes on a few occasions, but each time Myers asked that everything be left in place. Quote, I'm just sentimental. He says, quote, I'm going to miss it forever, so I might as well put off missing it as long as I can, close quote. I mean, it was a tough thing to, to leave. Yeah. I mean, I was there longer than high school and college together. You and know, I think longer than any other person that had been there aside from Daryl Hammond, right? Yeah. I'd been there 12 and a half years, and I'd lived a lot of different lives there. I'd gone from, you know, a featured player uh, to a struggling cast member to a, a head writer and then to an update. I, like, I'd had all these different lives there because I think that if you just do one thing there, I think it makes sense that, like, seven or eight years is, you know, you just run out of what you can give to that show. And I was lucky in that I kept finding, and I was even more lucky that the show kept... Uh, providing me different ways to help. 
uh, and be valuable. So uh, it was really hard, and I just uh, I felt like I finally was figuring it out. You know, I think that takes about 12 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, with that said, you know, again, I'm so happy that I, I did make the move. But it was really uh, it was really hard, and it's, it's easier every day. Um, and you can still see Lauren. I still see Lauren. <laughs> and, I, you know, it's really nice to, you know, I'm still really close with the people I was there with, yeah. and that helps too. And, uh, but yeah, it'll, you know, I, I do realize there'll be nothing else in my life quite like what that was. Sure. Yeah. So you come here and basically uh, you're following in the footsteps of David Letterman, Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Fallon in terms of people that have hosted Late Night. Um, was was their shadow in any way still felt by you? Did you reach out to them and say like, you know, give me advice on how you did it or how I should do it or whatever? Or, or is it Better to just go in as a clean slate. Well, I had Shoemaker. So you mentioned Mike Shoemaker, yes. who was a producer at SNL when I started. Uh, you know, really, I don't think I would have made it at SNL without his guidance. I think he pushed me towards the, the right sort of things. And then he became, you know, my best friend. And the fact that we still get to work together is the greatest part of this job. Sure. But he had gone through it. He had been through at the uh, at Late Night with Jimmy for a launch. Gotcha. And uh, I think that's helpful because... the. I think producing it, which he does, obviously, is you build it towards the skills of your host. Um, you know, any approach I would have uh, to be like Jimmy would have been a failure because of all the talents he has that I do not possess. So also the nice thing about my situation of taking over for Jimmy is I wasn't taking over for someone who was gone. I was taking over for someone who had just moved up right, an hour. He was so happy to, it was harder, to be yeah. honest, to take over on Weekend Update for Tina because Tina was gone. Right. It wasn't like another place you could go to see her right, doing right, Weekend right. Update earlier. So you don't really replace here as much as you're just now on after the person right, they something. were in love with. So. <laughs> you have referenced here in this conversation and, and elsewhere that uh, some of your competitors are more into dressing up or playing games or singing or imitating people or whatever – but that's just not your thing, and necessarily. And one person wrote like, "Fallon has the DNA of a performer. Myers has that of a, a writer." Do you find though? I mean, the thing that if each of them have something that they would, you know, people would instantly associate with them. The one that seems to be the thing that people associate with you is like maybe more of an intellectual approach. And just looking around your office, you have so many different interests. You could see sports and comic books and <laughs> yeah. David McCullough books <laughs> yeah. and all kinds of, I mean, I don't know that that applies necessarily to them. So do you feel if you were to step outside of yourself for a minute and look at the landscape of who's doing late night, is the thing that sort of defines your show a, a, a more writer-driven, intellectual type of approach? Well, it's certainly writer-driven. I love writers. You know, the writers on this staff really make me laugh. You know, I think a decision we made a while ago, um, you know, about a year ago now, was to try to make the first act of the show feel, it's like our newspaper act. Let's make it about the day's news. Let's really force ourselves to write as much this day, you know, starting the night before. Uh, and so, uh, you know, pretty much everything in the first 15 minutes has been written within 24 hours of when we say it. Wow. That gives us a real nice crispness. It's more fun to do. Uh, and then, you know, the next important thing is trying to have people you can have interesting conversations with. I think that, you know, you have a, when you have a good booking department, it really helps a show like mine. And I think in the end of the day, you know, 
there are so many people every talk show will take as a guest. You know, we had Morgan Freeman on last night. None right. of us are going to say that's not a fit. Right, right, right. Everybody <laughs> wants Morgan Freeman. And so it's sort of later in the show, those third guests, where I think we can all exercise our tastes a little bit. And so it's been nice to have a place where we can have authors on, we can have comic book authors on, uh, people from sports, people from um, politics. Well, yeah, a lot of presidential candidates. I mean, between... Uh First of all, Joe Biden, who was not a presidential candidate, but was thought he might be, was the first episode. And yep. then subsequently, everybody from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the left, not that she's running necessarily, but uh, might be a veep, uh, versus Ted Cruz and Carly Fiorina on the right. Is an election year as much of a uh, godsend in late night as it is on SNL, where it just seems to feed and fuel so much? Yeah, well, especially if you're sort of tasking yourselves with let's talk about what's going on in the world. Right. It's nice when... Again, uh, this is probably the wettest presidential campaign ever as far as, uh, you know, comic material. And uh, so we're very lucky, I think, because it's hard. You know, look, I've been at SNL where the biggest story is debt ceilings. And it's very hard to write a sketch about that. Right. And so we know that there's sort of boom times and, and bust times. And I think when you're doing something like this, you try to enjoy the time where... The audience is already a little bit tuned into what's going on, right. and you just try to take advantage of it the most you can. So if there's a segment, a recurring feature of the show, that would be the one that first comes to mind for people, you know, let's let's say with, with Corden, it's now the carpool karaoke, with Kimmel, it's the mean tweets. For you, would you uh, agree with the notion that it's a closer look? Yeah, I think the monologue, you know, sitting at a desk for the monologue and, and a closer look, which, you know, that's always going to be our first act. Uh, and, yeah, it feels like that's what I feel like how we define ourselves probably the most. Just again, I'm just looking at the at the full field of folks that are doing this at the moment. Many people have, have remarked that you and, and this whole generation of people that have pretty much in the last few years come in are – or at least seem far happier and sunnier and more yeah. <laughs> convivial than the ones who preceded you. Uh, do you agree with that premise? And if so, do you think it's just a coincidence or is it catering to a different sort of audience that's out there now? Well, I, you know, I think one of the things is there are a lot more places to do shows now. And so there is less pressure to have to do a show that, like you can we are we're all doing the show we want to do I don't look around and see anybody who's you say oh they're in a bad mood because they're doing this time right. slot on this network and that means they have to do this um, you know there's no better luxury in the world than getting to do an hour a night every night it's you know you get to try so many things and um, and with that said you know I, I do feel like there were some pretty there were so many fewer shows in the sort of the bloodbath era of this. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, if you watch Game of Thrones, you realize real estate is what people are fighting over. And again, if there were five Iron Thrones, there'd right. be no issues. Right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, now there's so many places for us to do these things. And uh, I would say shame on us uh, in this era right. where there's so many outlets. Uh, shame on any of us for being upset about it. So you mentioned that a year and a half into the show, which first went on, I guess, February 2014, a year yeah. and a half into it, you made this decision to break with the tradition of this format. And you were the first that said, I'm not going to do a standing monologue at the beginning. And now it's some people have called it the deskalogue. Yeah. Uh, what was the thought process behind that? Uh, I should, you know, I, I do want to 
point out my own stubbornness because there were other people who had pointed it out earlier that maybe I'd be more comfortable at the desk. But I did really want to try to do something different, I thought, for you know, personal growth. Right. Moving away from the update desk was the move of strength. But the reality was uh, the minute we decided to try it, I sat back down and felt so much more comfortable. I'd always... Doing a monologue, which I like doing, but I felt like my own warm-up comedian. Right. And that the show started seven minutes into it. Now it feels like it starts right away. You right. know, we made our opening montage even shorter. We're trying to have our first joke be as uh, quickly uh, from the end of, of The Tonight Show as possible. It's just to keep an audience, you think? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we just sort of thought... And that was the other reason, as far as when we talk about keeping an audience, we also, you know, we, it came to our attention that monologues look the same and, you know, the material can be different, but if you've just watched The Tonight Show and you've just seen Jimmy Fallon standing and telling jokes and then that show ends and ours starts, it feels like a rerun right. or a repeat. And so it was uh, trying to distinguish ourselves from the show that we are very aware that most of our audience has watched. And then also finding, you know, getting back to my sort of comfort level, which is, you know, uh, sitting and, and graphics. And it, and it allows it to be, I feel, it feels newsier and a little bit less conversational, which I think feeds to the kind of writing we do a little bit better. Do you tailor anything else in response to what precedes you with, with Jimmy? Because just to give one example of the kind of thing I'm thinking about, um, I had read that when uh, Corden figured out he's going to follow Colbert and you know that Colbert's doing it from a Broadway theater, well, where would you go after a Broadway theater? You would probably go to get a drink or you would go whatever, so they tailored their set in that way. Right. Do you? Did you guys... Uh, in any way feel a need to do anything different because of what was coming before you? Uh, we were always confident that, you know, because again, like Jimmy and I had overlapped at SNL, and even though I think from a distance we look similar, having worked together, we didn't really have a lot of overlap. And I know people would say, oh, they both, you both did update. And so I get the... The, 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 I, I understand that people would think that way, but I knew taste-wise we weren't going to end up in the same um, areas just because uh, they, you know, we have different things. We're drawn to different things. And again, you know, I uh, am constantly in uh, uh, living in jealousy of the things he can do that I can't <laughs> do. So it wasn't like if I tried to do anything that was similar to that I would just be such a, a pale compare like a pale copy in a distant second. Well, but I'm sure he has things that he wishes that, that he could do that you do. But uh, one thing that you do that I don't know that the others are game to do as much is when a joke doesn't work or uh, the audience resists something, you seem very cool with it and happy to laugh about it and whatever. And I wonder, is that something that carries over from SNL where you just learn not everyone is going to hit or is it different on late night because you're doing so many more that jokes? it's more the the latter yeah. because I think at SNL there was never a time where at update you were thrilled something bombed you because <laughs> you do so much you do address right you really try to wait by the time you get to here you want to have the bombs out right whereas here again you're right like we're just doing you know we're we're doing as many jokes a night as an update. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing basically four of them a week. And that's a, just a lot of volume. And, you know, the ones that I would say bomb now are ones that I really like. <laughs> and so I think one of the things that really makes me laugh when they bomb is they're always my fault. Right. 
Like I'm always the one that championed it. So keep so it in, keep it in. It's yeah. uh, it's definitely uh, I've been hoisted on my own petard when that happens. Like right. it's not like how dare you, head writer, right, who right. slipped this to me? Right. And then that's the other thing that makes this show fun. It makes the when it uh, when it fails, it's really funny to me. Is you know the thing about SNL that for all the belly aching people could do about Lorne. And Lauren's choices and and whatnot. There is this nice thing of you know ultimately you can always blame Lauren as a head writer. <laughs> when writers were mad about something not getting right. picked, I could always deflect and right. say, "Well, you know, it's Lauren's show. Right, right. Now it's my show." <laughs> and so everything that goes wrong is really at its core my fault. Right. And so when I do something that delights me and it, it strikes out with you know 180 people, it is. Uh, it's kind of joyous. <laughs> well, the last few things here are just big picture stuff. What is it about SNL that uh, seems to either propel people into great other mm-hmm. things, you, Jimmy, Tina, Amy, on and on and on, Will Ferrell, uh, or to, you know, very sad, tragic things that have happened to a number of other people? Again, less so in that case from your generation, but is there something about the the – type of person that can that can thrive in that climate that can't in other places in some in some situations you know maybe it's harder for me to talk to that because as you pointed out that really wasn't my experience or my generation the one thing i'll say is you know i think a lot of people probably bring that with them to the show the one thing you learn at the show that you don't bring with you the thing you bring with you when you leave is that show lets you into every part of production and as a writer, as a performer, you you leave an expert in television. And so I think that the reason so many people leave, and not just star in, in new things, they go on to create things. Because ultimately, Lauren does give you those tools to put together uh, things you're going to be proud of. Are you as happy doing what you do now as you were when you were in your dream job at SNL? I Look, I'm very hesitant to say this because I'm a new father right. and uh, I'm very happy about that. Right. I will say like being like t- late 20s New York City on SNL is a pretty great time. <laughs> but uh, in the way that, you know, uh, you, you know, when you're 18 and that summer you spend on the beach is great. <laughs> you know, there was there was a freedom to it right. that and uh, but with that said, I'm I'm sure I, I already am romanticizing my time at SNL because I also don't think there was a single time there where I went three consecutive shows without being furious about something or <laughs> or de- depressed about right. something or you know it was so you know I always feel like that show th- three in a row is almost impossible right. uh, to not have a, a some version of a dud. So uh, here, what's nice is there you. Uh, because again, at SNL, uh, there's a different host every week. On this show, I'm the host every day. And so that the one thing you could establish here is consistency. And as you get older, I think there's a happiness uh, to being able to provide something consistent right. and having the same schedule every day and being able to go home to your wife and kid at the same time every night. How long can you envision yourself doing this? Is the kind of thing that you could see yourself being like, you know, Carson or Letterman or somebody and you're going into your 60s, 70s? Or is it something that you feel is, is a shorter term thing? I, you know, I started uh, when I was 40, and I didn't really know, and uh, but now two and a half years in, it certainly seems like I would, uh, uh, you know, if I'm lucky enough to do it for 10 years, would be uh, uh, more than I could ask for. And then, 
And that's the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reassess every decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seems fair. Yeah. And then just as the last question, are there specific other things that I don't know if you have the time to do when you're doing this as well, but are there other things that you still have specifically on the to-do list that you've really, you know, uh, wanted to do and just haven't gotten around to doing yet? You know, I've been lucky to, you know, I have this show on IFC with Fred and Bill called Documentary Now, and that was a, you know, a lot of things sort of broke right that we ended up getting to do that show, and, and that sort of scratches an itch for me of, of sort of harkening back to my SNL days where I'm just sort of writing scripts for really talented guys and really talented directors. Um, and I would imagine as really talented people come through here, talented writers, I would love to be helpful to them in, in helping produce their next, uh, their sort of breakout uh, uh, projects. Um, but as for myself, you know, I think that doing these jobs, you do have to like make sure you're checking in on yourself and your own happiness. And, and sometimes that means that when the show's over, you kind of don't think about show business for a while. And, right. and that you, you know, when this show ends, I think having to refocus on my something else uh, other than family would, would be uh, detrimental. Well, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. I really it. appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you.